Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Story of Us podcast presented by the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at The Ohio State University. Our guest today is PhD candidate Craig Shapiro. Hey, Craig, how's it going? Hey, Andrew, I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Thank you so much for being here. To begin, could you talk a little bit about a book or article that struck you recently, something you've read maybe that's related to your research uh, you'd like the folks to know about? Yeah, I've been so working in the Pacific. I'm working on my PhD dissertation fieldwork in Samoa, and there's a there's a book that came out, I guess not so recently now, that's from a, a member of the faculty named Dr. Maddie Williams at University of Canterbury. It's an unfortunately generic title, and it's called uh, Polynesia 900 to 1600. And it's, it's really been insightful for me in working in the Pacific and not being a Pacific Islander in how it helps me to kind of differentiate between two different sets of knowledge in the sense that there's archaeology, which of course has its own biases uh, from within the discipline and by its practitioners, but for all intents and purposes makes its best effort to be objective. And how that works in tandem with oral history and interpretations of indigenous people. And I think that I think that I think that this podcast has probably covered it in, in some regards beforehand as like what what is the role of the anthropologist as activist? I'm sure it's something that you've probably thought about. Other people who might listen to this podcast have thought about, but it kind of depends what your own identity is in, in certain ways and what you can assume, how you interpret things, places where you shouldn't be doing either of those, and trying to create a sort of disambiguation between the scientific approach and the cultural approach in I guess in a sort of way that doesn't undermine the objectivity of posing a research question, creating relevant hypotheses in order to attempt to answer that question, and then you know using those associated methodologies in order to attempt to falsify those hypotheses, right? And with the book from Maddie Williams, she's a Maori scholar at, down in the South Island, New Zealand. And it's, it's, it's really instructive to see the clarity with which she is telling a story. She's a historian about the deep prehistory or pre-colonial past. Prehistory is seeming to be coming, uh, seeming to be uh, increasingly a, a, a problematic term. And how to incorporate information that has gone through those you know, attempts at falsification in order to tell the most accurate story possible about that distant past. And she's able to take a particular position because it's her story. Like she, you know, the, it's all about having the agency to include that cultural perspective and have that be the narrative and then find the ways in which that tested data and information fits into that or serves as a sort of tool 
in some way for corrective history. Like how can archaeology essentially serve as a methodology for the science of history, I guess, and help us to tell a more accurate story about the past. I guess there's that that sort of adage about history being written by the victors. And it the book kind of serves as a guideline for how archaeology can help to tell the stories of everyone else. While also while being a framework for mitigating overstepping of anthropologists in you know those sorts of assumptions and interpretations that can offend people that can be wrong and yeah has been has been a really good guide for me in kind of staying in my lane which I think has has saved me a a lot of stress and prevented me from making uh, mistakes that I've seen people before me make, if, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the next question here is just a little bit more about this sort of idea of how it's helping, especially with methodology. So how has the text that you were describing just now really helped you in navigating epistemology, knowledge production, and uh, community-based archaeology? Yeah, the in thinking about that book and how that applies to working in the Pacific, but not necessarily limited to the Pacific, it's it's really working with indigenous people and being inclusive of that oral history and that perspective. When it comes to you know sort of knowledge production and epistemology, it does go back to that question of what are what's the the, the origin of the story that we're telling ourselves. Like, where does that history come from? Are there parts of it that are biased? Are there parts of it that are underrepresentative of particular people? And I really have found it, again, instructive to sort of stay in my lane. And epistemology may be the most important part because there's a weird sort of power, I guess, in controlling the narrative and definitely an outsized portion of that narrative that uh, is controlled by academicians and Western establishment. What's already been written, not only in peer-reviewed journals, but just since the early colonial era in, in all forms of media. And I'm currently working on a project working with the Falimata uh, Anga, the National Museum of Samoa. And there is, there's so much that's changed in the story about the remote Pacific just in the last 20 years. And of course, it's, it's difficult in one way to, you know, capture all of that in a way that does justice to the diversity and complexity and interconnectedness and traditional knowledge, all these sorts of important elements, adaptability of, of indigenous peoples in the Pacific, but in an even more kind of conflicting way is that it's not my history, right? So I have to find a way to honor those people's history while not overstepping. And I guess there's only there's only two ways to do it, right? There's to really embody that culturally relativistic perspective and never abandon that or fail to do that in any way. Which, you know, you could argue is impossible, 
And then there is just saying that you don't know, which, which is, it's surprising that it doesn't happen more. I, I think that a really big problem in terms of where archaeology has headed over the last half century in terms of legitimizing itself with this science is communicating science itself and communicating archaeology. There are so many folks who take, so many students who take courses in archaeology who go in thinking that they're going to learn about Atlantis or spiritual energy that connects pyramids all over the world or whatever conspiracy they're seeing on TikTok. And there's not a whole lot of people in the academy adapting their methods in order to correct that or push back against that. As long as people are focusing and publishing for peer-reviewed journals that cost exorbitant amounts of money to subscribe to, or that you need to be affiliated with an institution who's paying those licensing fees, what have you. And it's a sort of, it's the difference between hubris and humility. It is, if somebody asks me a question that I can either you know, give my best guess based on the information that I have and in many regards, like, I guess if you're describing what a doctor does, what is a PhD, right? A doctor is going to make a diagnosis and then use, you know, their expertise and relevant information in order to provide a sort of prescription. And when it's, when it's related to people's, like, if it's medicine, if it's related to people's health, like, yeah, those, those People just kind of have to do their best guess, especially because someone's life could be at stake at that given moment. But there's there's always going to be the potential for a negative externality, for, for an unintended negative outcome. And I think that there really needs to be more humility in that way. In, I, and, and I don't really understand why, apart from reinforcing potentially status or ego or just habit or modeling on folks who came before you who were doing the same thing but just just say you don't know you can you can give an i think or an i feel statement and say yeah i can i can look into it for you and try and find you some sources or try and redirect you in a different direction but in working in samoa i've spent so much time trying and explaining all of this information that that folks on the island just don't have access to. And it's so it's so strange to explain history of people of their own history to them. And in 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 practicing it and doing it over and over and over again, it could be overcorrecting, I guess, but I, I've kind of just fallen into the opinion that I can't I can't know everything. And I'm not going to make it seem like I do. The, the important thing moving forward from sort of community archaeology perspective is co-production of knowledge, right? Including people who are writing the narrative and again, having that sort of supplementation 
archaeology. And it's not to say that archaeology is irrelevant. There, it's 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 used in tandem with that oral history because the perspective that people have, that sort of cultural milieu, that guides the decisions that they make in their everyday lives. If you know, if doctors of medicine are making prescriptions about you know, different pathologies, people's bodies, right? What are, anthropologists are studying how we organize and what our society is like, how people interact with each other, how people make, like, uh, what, how culture influences the decisions that people make and you know, what biases play roles in that decision-making. So it gives, it gives anthropologists a, a really useful lens in in constructing the that story about the past but it's 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 really easy to to sort of go a little too far and the the primary voice has to be coming from somebody who can like has that actual perspective not somebody that's coming from a completely different one and as much as you know, as much as I'd like to, as much as I try, uh, I'm just I, I've I've I accepted a long time ago that I'm 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 just not going to be able to do that part of it, and instead I'm just going to do what I can. It strikes me that a lot of what you're talking about here in this sort of idea is about expertise, like what is the expertise for, or even specialization, like what is it for. And who is it for? So it, mm -hmm. it strikes me that that's kind of related to this too. I don't know if you have any anything to add on that part or else we can move on. I, I Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There's a certain level of intentionality. And yeah, absolutely. Who is it for? What What's the intention of the research? Who has had influence over it in the past? And who's been underrepresented in, in creating that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool, thanks. So uh, the next question is just about for you to talk through the ongoing field work in some of, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about that and uh, your main research questions and your primary methods, just to get a sense of your project. Yeah, so I've been I've been working in Samoa. I'm recently, the U.S. Student Fulbright Program awardee to the Pacific Islands, one of, and I I have a project that is looking at how do people in the pre-colonial past modify their landscapes in order to construct socioecologically resilient systems? And I've the intention is to stay focused on monumental features that still actually impact the environment today and can benefit people moving forward, seeing how they've changed over time and learning from the traditional ecological knowledge inherent in those systems in a way that benefits people who may have lost that knowledge since the contact period. I, I, I feel quite confident in saying that no Pacific Island lost less than 90% of their population since the contact era. It doesn't mean that it happened all at once or it even happened steadily, but with introduced everything from slavery, blackbirding, introduced disease, increased warfare, violence, that's essentially resultant of 
extreme population decline, power vacuums, foreign foreign parties funding sort of proxy wars uh, for for geopolitical positioning. That you know, if you have those sorts of events or an epidemic that comes every however many decades and knocks out everybody over a certain age, there's there's an enormous amount of knowledge loss from generation to generation. And the systems that I'm working with haven't necessarily, they really haven't maintained the knowledge related to the construction of them. So, and, and this is mainly in regards to agricultural ditching and terracing. I mean, I'll go up, I'll go with farmers to their plantations and I'll look at a feature and ask them what it is, if they can explain it, who made it, how old it is. And the answer that I get is they call them rivers, even if they're dry at that given moment. And I'll try and explain that people made them and that it's a little more interesting than being a natural feature that if I ask them, they say, how long have you, has your family been using this out of land for your plantation? They say forever. Okay, well. Wouldn't it be cool if you were benefiting from something that your grandfather's 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 grandfather made and that it actually still functions in a way that mitigates, you know, negative externalities of extreme climatic events, flooding, erosion, landslides today. And they can get into that and start asking more questions and start seeing those same features in different areas that have different purposes, not just for rainwater accumulation and mitigating flooding, but as delineations uh, in terms of like altitude or soil type for that, that are impactful for uh, growth of particular crops, particular places as delineations for boundaries, for uh, land ownership that's associated with chiefly titles around the island. And there is a lot of support, which has been really <laughs> motivating in looking at you know, what, what happened in this place in the deep past that, that's still useful. And what I've done already is in working with the Samoan National, the National University of Samoa with the uh, Ministry of Education, Sports and Culture, with the Ministry of Natural Resources and the Environment, who are the sort of proprietors of the, the LIDAR data set that I've been working with for the entirety of the nation of Samoa, is reprocessing that LIDAR data using ArcGIS so that I can hopefully, this is the PhD, create a comparative model. What I've been able to do is, is model the contemporary system. So these, the remnant archaeological system. And how does it currently function? I can identify areas that are well-drained and thus more resilient for modern agricultural production, which the inverse allows me to identify areas that are more at risk. I can overlay that with different kinds of soil data and look at productivity across the landscape. I can look in the remote interior of the island because island settlement and population dynamics and movement have changed dramatically since contact. And we'll see how much I can say about 
evolution of social complexity, but in, in a really narrow way, it's, it's an applied project to go in and do excavations within these ditching features, especially at their points of intersection, because there's main canal features and then offshoots running perp- perpendicular to those canals that redirect rainwater into natural stream systems on the eastern half of the island of Rupolu in Samoa. And if I can get enough of a sample to create a sort of ratio and then plug that in to modify the digital elevation models used in ArcGIS and build a model of the pre-colonial or capacity at the time of construction of this system. Then take that information and share it with the people who I work with in the field. The research is meaningless unless it has meaning to them. And in providing them with that information, can I give them opportunities in order to update or make improvements on the remnant system in a way that reflects the knowledge of their ancestors, of the people who originally made the system, and can further mitigate these sorts of potentially catastrophic natural events. It strikes me that a lot of what you're working on is almost like recovering or bringing back an understanding of the memory that was had that allows these systems to still function. And then exactly where you're describing there at the end is almost like, okay, here they are, here's what they do. And here's how they can be almost, I don't know about updated is the word, but something along those lines to ensure that they continue doing what they were designed to do. Does that kind of work? Yeah. And I think it's your next question, but there's, there's a really welcome change in looking at how our climate is changing, right? In there's still going to be the overwhelming people of academia who start to say, everything's doomed. We're destroying everything. There's no going back. Everything's about to get worse. We're going to face all of these negative things. And so I, in looking at the contemporary system, and that's what I did for my master's research, because especially throughout COVID and even following finishing my master's, uh, Samoa was closed. Um, so I couldn't actually go and do field work. So I was really just using the, the modeling for what's there now, given the LIDAR data. And, and a version of that thesis is going to be published in an upcoming edited volume called Sustainability in Ancient Island Societies and Archaeology of Human Resilience, which admittedly is a mouthful. It's, it's coming from the University Press of Florida. And it's, it's, it's a really cool edited volume to be part of because it's not just predicting what's going to happen and how horrible it's going to be. It's, it's, it's focused on how can we use adaptive knowledge, systems and methods that have been tested in the particular areas that are facing greater risk to provision those people to stay where they live and have lived for millennia, which is far more compelling, interesting, complex, motivating way to look at building resilience, you know, again, in that sort of 
adaptive and culturally relativistic way that allows people to stay where they want to be and is just wholly more optimistic rather than pessimistic. Thank you for that response. Is there anything else you would want our listeners to know about you, about the research that you're working on, any teaching, any publications, anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited since getting back to Samoa to have started some projects that are related to that those elements of traditional knowledge and building resilience and capacity. There's the, the biggest sort of ethical issue that I've had since coming back and working with the Pacific is if I'm doing an excavation, hypothetically, I haven't had any artifact collection so far. I'm just looking at the stratigraphy of these ditching features. But so maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I wasn't around, so I don't know exactly. Different countries in the Pacific started saying to cultural stewardship institutions abroad, we want our things back. And many of those institutions and the practitioners of archaeology who had collected those artifacts and expatriated them used the lack of capacity in the global south as a cudgel to refuse to return them. And I find myself in this really ethically dubious position as somebody beginning a career in archaeology in the Pacific in that if I am to excavate something, I have two options in order to actually like do further study of that artifact or object. It's either to expatriate it, which I, I'm, I am not going to do, and I don't really think anyone should at this point, or leave it somewhere that in, in, in a local institution that might have not have a proper storage facility, that doesn't have humidity or climate control, that, that doesn't have what people who maintain these sorts of standards for preservation would accept as being a wholly safe context in order to preserve that cultural heritage. So really my only ethical recourse at, at the current stage is to put anything I find back in the ground and try to build the capacity in country which of course is an enormous undertaking. All that fun grant writing and building collaborative partnerships. So there's, there's a number of different avenues for doing that with the National Museum of Samoa, but it's slow. It's, it's really hard to see. And admittedly, the, the people who, who sort of failed to step up in the past, they've, they inherited this, the field of archaeology and being that way. And even on an even wider sense, I, I think very much of anthropology as like the reflexive science, right? Anthropology itself started as especially like biological anthropology, which we all or, or people are starting to transition to calling physical anthropology. And it's all it was about racial identifications and differences in biology among people from different places and ethnicities. And that, again, and coming back to the sort of communicating science, that had lasting impacts. I, I saw a survey not, not too long ago among people who work in forensics departments at, uh, in different policing 
departments and institutions around the United States, and that an alarming number of those folks still believe that race is biological. And that leads police officers into thinking that there's biological differences between people and that there's you know, scientific evidence for people of different races actually being biologically different, which then uh, creeps into the public as well as how police treat different people. And anthropo it's, it, it's the sort of question of like, what, what, what is anthropologists and archeologists responsibility in order to be reflexive about those things and to, to work to fix the mistakes and the, the malpractice of the people who came before us. And of course, the scientific racism is, is a, a different level than what I'm dealing with in terms of like heritage preservation in the Pacific. But, but it's the same sort of reflexivity that, that I'm struggling with and that perpetuating that denial prevents moving forward in a helpful way and in a way that continually marginalizes the same people. I, I, can, I can't go around and expect you know, museums and universities to return everything they have. Idealistically, I guess you could, but it's just not gonna happen. And again, people in, in, inherited the, the current system of uh, artifact expatriation in that way. But those are the same folks who like have tenure and have these relationships with powerful institutions and important people and people with funding and people who run universities and museums and governments. And can't, but I also can't force them to be reflexive about how they perpetuated what maintained, what is maintained as an issue. And now I'm coming in to a field with, with no recourse, with no, with no like actual ethical way to proceed unless I, I, I work to do it myself. And again, I am a young foreign researcher. Like how much, how much can I expect to really do? And is it my place to? are also questions, but it's, it's, a, it's a, I guess it's just this question of responsibility and accountability that you know, I, is, is at the same time kind of contrary to what I said at the beginning in terms of separating the, the objective from the oral history, separating from the archeological science from speaking over indigenous people. But it, it's not exactly, about indigenous people. It's about the role of the academy that I guess I would challenge anyone listening this to, to really consider. Thank you. I think that's a great provocation to end on. I really appreciate the time and thank you all for listening and have a wonderful holiday. Thanks, Andrew.